0: Thank you for listening to Soho Bites the only podcast in the world as far as we're aware dedicated to talking about films set in Soho the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London If you would like to support the show you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are, again, sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review and sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to episode four of Soho Bites, a Soho on-screen podcast. My name is Jing On Yang. I'm a writer and researcher into the depiction of Soho, the beating heart of cosmopolitan Bohemian London in British films. Places that characterise Soho throughout the decades, clubs, bars, shops, cinemas, they seem immortal during their lifetimes and prove themselves often to be anything but. Sometimes it's the changing fashion or the death of an irreplaceable proprietor of a loved institution, but sadly closures are often at the hands of aggressive commercialisation in the heart of London. Madame Jojo's, the Colony Club, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, the Pillars of Hercules and more recently the Coach and Horses it seemed once unimaginable that these beloved establishments would ever disappear. In this episode of Soho Bites, we'll be revisiting two Soho sites that have changed beyond all recognition. First, we'll be hearing about the campaign to save Denmark Street, and the filmmaker behind the award-winning Tales from Tin Pan Alley. In the second half of the program, I'll be chatting to Dr. Adrian Smith, also known as Mr. Retro Ramblings, about Sexploitation Fair, Secrets of a Windmill Girl. A film based around the famed burlesque establishment, The Windmill Theatre, whose motto, We Never Closed during World War II, became synonymous with wartime propaganda. Do stick around to the end of the programme to hear details of the Soho Agogo Festival this week at the Regent Street Cinema, where I and my producer Dom will be guests at very special screenings of well-known and not so well-known Soho films. Denmark Street, which runs from Charing Cross Road to St Giles High Street, was famous for its music shops and for being home to the British music industry. Budding skifflers, wannabe rock and rollers, folkers, jazzers, punks, new waivers, if they wanted to make it in music, they headed to Denmark Street, which became known, like its New York counterpart, as Timpan Alley. The last couple decades have not been so kind to Denmark Street. Changing music technologies and increasing rents have already put the alley under pressure. And by the time the expansion of Tottenham Court Road Station as part of the Crossrail project happened, eating into the physical infrastructure of the street and its neighbors forced producers out and many music shops to close. At the forefront of efforts to halt this decline and protect the remaining legacy of Tin Pan Alley is the campaigner and filmmaker Henry Scott Irvine. Henry began a campaign to save Denmark Street, a campaign which culminated in him making a fascinating 90 minute documentary, which has since garnered great success at several film festivals. Producer Dom was lucky enough to catch a screening of the film at the inaugural Tiny Film Club a few weeks back at the Hack and Hop Pub in the Square Mile. He managed to sit down with Henry for a few minutes to ask him a little bit about the campaign, the film, and of course, the legacy of Denmark Street. So, this is the first
2: Tiny Film Club screaming, you see? Tiny room, tiny audience, small, but perfectly formed. <clears> of <throat> uh, our great friend yeah. here, Phil Strongman. The words are hack and hop. I'm Henry scott and I've made this documentary, which we crowdfunded. Uh, it came out of running the Save Denmark Street campaign. The idea originally was never to make a film about Denmark Street, but to try and save some of the music shops in Denmark Street, which we did. So let's, let's just go back to... Um before the film there was the campaign yes. and before the campaign
0: there was Denmark street yes could you explain the importance of Denmark street and how why
2: is it under threat Denmark Street is um, Britain's only bespoke music street. In fact, it's the only music street left of its kind in the world. It is under threat because of two reasons. It was sold by Frasers in 1996, who were the freeholders of the street, to a company called Consolidated Developments, who became the freeholder, owning the land, the leaseholder, owning the tenancies for the shops and the rooms above and below in most addresses and also, of course, then by default becoming the landlord to these shops. Crossrail happened, and uh, that meant that some of the buildings in the immediate area to the rear of Denmark Street were given compulsory purchase orders, CPOs as they're known. What does that mean? It meant land grab. It meant you're going and we're not compensating you. Your venue, Astoria, uh, Metro Club, Enterprise Recording, Rehearsal Studios to give but three examples, were all compulsory purchased uh, and taken for crossrail for the railway station. And we saw that um, small businesses were being purged. They were being killed. They were being murdered. They were, They wanted to stay. Their leases were being taken off them. Or in the case of Denmark Street, they waited 20 years for them all to run out. And then it looked like they wouldn't be renewed. And uh, it seemed important to capture the essence of this 110 year street of music getting the people who lived and worked in the street to tell their tales and the idea really was to make it like a modern day Canterbury tale And the original plan was to do it very differently from documentaries because, sadly, music documentaries are now hidebound by um, editorial constraints, a result of publisher broadcasting that was initiated by Channel 4 in 1982 as a good thing that meant that commissioning editors, academics, um, people who'd worked in the city running production companies would come in and play parent and headmaster and tell filmmakers how to make films. So it was a fighting development, fighting authoritarianism at every angle, and making a film, knowing how to make films, without that kind of constraint, which we did by crowdfunding this on the back of a huge campaign that had huge media television awareness. So we got to make a film that I think is very different. And it's won awards. It's won nine uh, international uh, awards, seven for Best Documentary, and the trailer itself won two Best uh, Trailer Awards in Hollywood, which we did in a kind of conventional way. And we were very uh, glad to get uh, Rob Brown to do the voice for that. And he, of course, has done the over for many Ridley Scott films. So his voice, if you see that on YouTube for Tales from Tin Pan Alley, is a voice that, of course, you think, I've heard that voice before. Of course you have, because he's the godfather of science fiction. And I think the Marvel movie trailers. So we were very lucky to get him. He's the guy who goes, in a world It's him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Take a journey back through time with historians and those who lived and worked in London's legendary music street, Denmark Street. Tales from Tin Pan Alley, a 90-minute documentary. Coming soon.
2: Uh, The technique that's very different in this film is that once each person's interview is finished, you don't see them again. They hand a baton on, a a storytelling baton, uh, a metaphorical relay race, if you like, that takes you forward to the next chapter, year, and different skill base or job. And we think we've pulled it off. The most obvious thing would have been to have a narrator tell a story, tell you what to already think. The problem when you write... Uh, a narration for a film is you then have to make the film and cut it to the story you've written you have no journey of discovery your research should be ongoing you should be researching as you go, you should have a whole backlog of research but on top of that you must have ongoing research and be open to it we find the constraints of television don't allow for that Um, and in the case of this film it did we discovered a lot there are secret histories in this film that reveal Denmark Street in fact to be the home of British silent cinema before it opened anywhere else, which um, the cinema museum were bowled over by our discoveries. That's very interesting, actually, because I've looked
0: a little bit into the um, film industry in Soho, and um, my understanding was silent film began in Soho in 1908 in Wardour Street. I've forgotten the guy's name now. But it's 1908 in... Denmark Street, is that what you're saying?
2: Well, I would say uh, you're you're right and we're right in that it wasn't exclusive to Denmark Street. Uh, the Lumiere brothers had certainly uh, been around before and probably in uh, the West End. And if you were to go down uh, Charing Cross Road and into uh, New Compton Street and uh, Little Compton Street, which is no longer there, they were certainly there too. Um, but there were also seven addresses in Denmark Street during the First World War where uh, film cameramen had laboratories um, and were coming back and processing film and even had uh, two small screening rooms that they were showing films in in Denmark Street. And then it moved to Wardour Street, yeah. Could you just explain the name Tin Pan Alley? Where's that come from? That's also American, isn't it? Uh, They certainly, I think, nicked it from America. There's quite a few. We were going to have a bit of fun and we asked everybody, what does it mean? And of course, nobody really knows the definitive answer. But we think the the nearest one, which we were told by uh, the current chairman of uh, PRS, Nigel Elderton, is that in America, in uh, the Brill Building, and in their particular Tin Pan Alley, uh, when there were all these pianos, you would demo your song at a piano uh, in in those days, uh, when the days of sheet music and before recording. And of course, Like you have in any creative business, people would listen in and sometimes steal your tune. So they employed kids to bang pans outside the door. Now, that's one story. And there was a pan factory nearby. Now they say there was also a pan factory nearby, the one in London too. Is that true? I don't know. I'm going to choose to believe it. Yes. Because it's a good story. (laughs) We think that's the most plausible one.
3: Budding and fledgling and ambitious musicians, when they came, this is the street they came to. They didn't go to Piccadilly or they didn't go to Notting Hill Gates or Portobello Road. They came to Denmark Street.
0: Denmark Street was a music factory. It was one little road with about half a dozen demo studios in it. But the demos were good quality. The whole street
2: represented every major
0: publisher in the world. What do you think is the future for Denmark Street? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? I mean, I'm down there, I walk down it maybe once a fortnight there is still guitar shops i mean i don't know if there's recording studios there i don't think there is there's a lot of construction going on obviously is that it
2: now is it going to get is that as bad as it gets or is it going to get worse i mean you know we met consolidated to two of the developers planning people they didn't particularly like us you know their attitude was that we were poking our nose into something that they paid for and they owned and uh, an associate of theirs said how would i like it if uh I walk through your back garden, and that's kind of how they view kind of campaigners. Um, what we made sure was that when the leases ran out they would be offered a three year tenancy. There were many people involved lawyers, barristers, Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistol, Dan Cruikshank uh, Jane Palm Gold, a wonderful historian enabled us to get three buildings great uh, two star listed and uh, it meant that the shops would have to be offered a three year lease legally so eight shops will be there they're still there, go and buy a guitar the shops aren't going anywhere fast unless they have a, a termination upon their lease or in case the landlord of Of course, happens to double the rent one year and then double it again the next year. There are no recording studios left in Denmark Street. There were, the reason, of course, they went was the builders accidentally left the door open one night. Now, they needed access, but of course, all the dust ruined all the equipment in there. Was it deliberate? We will never know. Of course, they will say it wasn't, and it probably wasn't, and it was probably be an accident. But hey-ho, what a convenient way to get the uh, people in the studio to leave, and they did. They're now in Darby Street, very nice people. Denmark Street Studios, still there. So, um, it was, won't be as it was because you've got a shopping mall which uh, I do believe The Guardian have nominated uh, for the Carbuncle Cup as one of the ugliest monstrosities yet to be built in London and of course the developers aren't very happy that people criticise them. Oh well they're worth probably a billion now so all I can say is if you're unhappy
0: (laughs)
1: Thank you to Henry Scott Irvine for taking time to talk to Soho Bites. If you'd like to see the film Tales from Tin Pan Alley, there are two screenings coming in the near future. Stick around to the end of the show for further details.
0: Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobytespodcastcom forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobytespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode.
1: We Never Close was once the motto of the Windmill Theatre, the world famous nude review venue on Great Windmill Street. Of course, there is a version of The Windmill still in that very location, now The Windmill International, but its 20-year heyday as an erotic revue theatre, serving up a mixed bill of variety, comedy and, of course, scantily clad lovelies, came to an end in 1964 when it closed as a live performance establishment and reopened as an adult cinema. The reputation of The Windmill was, and remains, the fame of Windmill Girls, which has persisted well beyond its lifetime, Aiden in part, perhaps, by the release of the movie we're discussing in this episode, Secrets of a Windmill Girl from 1966.
4: Windmill girls.
1: Secrets of a Windmill Girl tells the tragic history of another who took to drink and finally killed herself after working in strip clubs also goes the blurb on the back of one poster for the film. Produced by the infamous Compton cameo team Michael Klinger and Tony Tenzer, two fierce property magnates in their own right, and even rival to Paul Raymond, who owned, alongside a film production arm, a number of casinos and porn cinemas. They bought the windmill in 1964 and converted it into a cinema. This film is simply an attempt to exploit their new purchase and to exploit what, beyond a surface level, appears to be the aftermath of the Profumo affair and its exponential explosion of porn magazines and CD Soho in the public imagination. Filmed in glorious colour, the film features a very young Pauline Collins taking the lead role of Pat Lord, the tragic windmill girl who drives herself to drink and ultimately death. In one sense the Soho that is depicted by the film is a Soho that is now proliferated by porn. Dr. Adrian Smith elaborates on his wonderful article which will be available at the end of the program, describes it as naive and quaint depicting the lives of young people in the mid 60s as filtered through the contradictory viewpoint of middle-aged men who both gaze with the desire at these sexualized women while simultaneously condemning them for choosing that lifestyle. Adrian is a lecturer in film at Sussex University with a special interest in the distribution and exhibition of 1960s and 1970s British films. We were very pleased to discover on his arrival that he brought with him a box of very interesting 50-year-old paraphernalia. For this episode, we're talking about an extremely salacious sexploitation film from 1966, Secrets of a Windmill Girl, I don't know what our guest is going to tell us a little bit about the film and how important it is in this canon. Um, we're with Dr. Adrian Smith, a lecturer in film at the University of Sussex. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Adrian has just given us a little look into his extremely interesting archival collection of paraphernalia of Secrets of a Windmill Girl. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, well, it's a film that I've been aware of for a while. I think I'm not quite sure how but I seem to have ended up researching various bits of British exploitation film over the years. I think it's really interesting, even though the films themselves are quite often not very good. But that doesn't really matter. I just still find it all very fascinating. And so I was aware of this movie, although I'd never seen it. And then, so I met a guy who had his collection that he had um, been selling off for 20 years. And it was something, it it all come from the offices of Compton Films. So Compton were the biggest independent film distributors in the 1960s in Britain. They started very quickly with a film club in Soho, private cinema club. And then, um, so these two guys, Michael Klinger Tony Tenser, they had experience. Um, Tony Tenser had worked for Miracle Films and Michael Klinger had owned a couple of clubs in Soho, strip clubs. So they got together because they loved films, they started this private cinema club, very quickly they realised that they could make more money if they sold, if they made films and then sold them to other cinemas and then that led to them making films and then buying cinemas around the country and becoming quite a big, Mm. vertically integrated, independent cinema producers, distributors and exhibitors. And that lasted for only a few years, they were a relatively short-lived company. But and then they sort of went the separate ways, and various things. So I ended so this guy who had all this stuff. So I went to his um, office that he had at Pine Studios, and he had these two suitcases just filled with ephemera, basically from Compton. And I bought most of it off him that I what I could afford to buy. Anything to do with Compton, I, he let me have, because no one else had ever been interested in it. Some of it ended up going into my PhD thesis. Some of it never did. So this didn't. But I still found it really interesting. So what it, I found to do with this film was a collection of press cuttings. So there were press agencies back obviously before the internet, and you could Google search something to see if you've been mentioned anywhere. There, <laughs> were, there were cuttings agencies who would just cut out any articles from all the newspapers to do with whatever it was you, were, you asked them to look for. So at some point Compton had asked them to collect stories about um, the windmill and the windmill girls so that's what i have is this collection of original cuttings that they would have had in their office which anyone else would have thrown away at some point mm. so i'm really lucky that and that i just it survived and now i've got it and um So that led me to do some more research into Compton's connection with all this.
1: Didn't they buy the Windmill Theatre at some point, the building itself?
4: They did. So they took over. So um, Vivian Van Damme, who was the legendary figure behind the windmill, he died in 1960 Mm. and his daughter was running it. But because um, censorship laws changed in the early 60s because obviously theatres couldn't have nudity on stage, you know, unless they didn't move, which was the famous thing with the windmill. But strip clubs could have nudity and people could move around. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically the windmill were losing customers and losing revenue to these other clubs around Soho and eventually they needed to close down. And so um, they closed in 1964 and Compton bought them and turned them into a cinema and a casino. And they moved their offices from the cinema club and put their offices in the windmill as well. But then they only stayed there for about three years and then they sold it. Yeah, because I
1: think, yeah, because I think Paul Raymond ended up buying it in in the 70s. So this building has had, you know, crosses so many hands.
4: Yeah, it went through uh, a few different people. So it's a shame at one point, I think before Paul Raymond uh, bought it, a bunch of the windmill girls were trying to get it back and own it themselves. And there's a story that I found how they wanted to turn it back into a sort of retro, uh, wartime windmill.
1: That would have been fantastic. Yeah,
4: and that's what they wanted to do and they thought that would be really good for audiences to come and do something different but obviously that didn't happen (laughs) and it was just another strip club for Paul Roman in the end. But yeah, so Compton owned it and that was why they wanted to make this film. So a couple of years before they'd produced a documentary called Primitive London and then the follow-up film to that, which was called London in the Raw. So Stanley Long and Arnold Louis Miller were a kind of documentary filmmaking pair and they'd made a few things, nudist documentaries and what was that jungle one? i forgotten the name. A
1: West End Jungle. West End
4: Jungle. And so they were commissioned by Compton to do uh, Primitive London. And part of that had involved going to the windmill and filming performances in, I think it was 1963. But then for some reason they didn't put it in to Primitive London so we had these film cans of performances from the windmill so Tony Tenser never a man to miss an opportunity to make money said why don't we take that footage now that we've bought the windmill let's make a film in the windmill so before they brought the builders in to convert it to a cinema they shot this film and they, the plan was that they would incorporate the previously shot footage with a new storyline which and I guess we'll get to this when we talk about the film which means you've basically got two films <laughs> that don't quite gel together in one movie.
1: So that's why the dance these kind of really laboriously long dance sequences mm-hmm. sort of intercut throughout the film are literally from cans of old film yeah. that are just spliced in.
4: And that's why you you never see any of the main cast on the stage and why any of the costumes that you see the main cast wearing backstage and then they don't appear on the stage. <laughs> um, there was no real attempt to make it gel together. So it's quite jarring from a sort of narrative point of view.
1: One of my favourite dance sequences in the film, amongst many, several, <laughs> um, is the uh, fan dance. Yes. Um, I find it extremely elegant um, yeah. and quite engaging. But I wondered, I mean, what you kind of thought about it in, in terms of the context of the film or in terms of just the style or
4: we well, you're very fortunate that you, that is your favourite dance because you get to see it about 25 times during the movie. They constantly keep coming back to the fan dance. <laughs> um, even the end credits, like you think, oh, finally, we've got to the end of the movie, and there it is again. The fan dance is one of those classic titillatory dances that is done in burlesque to this day because the idea is that you think you see her naked, but you're not sure. So they could do the fan dance and just about get away with it because they're constantly staying covered enough but that was kind of the big thing because the men would all be leaning forwards in the hope that this time this might be the time where she moves the fan slightly in the wrong direction and they might get a glimpse um, but I doubt they ever did because if they did the theatre would have been in massive trouble.
1: In terms of the dance performances who is so tell me a bit about that like who choreographed it? Um, was there any choreographer?
4: Well, the real choreographer from The Windmill is actually in the film, and I'll tell you his name because I've got it written down here. Is Peter Peter Gordino. So there's the scenes where you see the dancers with the choreographer, that was him. Fantastic. So he's kind of appearing in the film.
1: It begins as a very, you know, quite quite exciting opening sequence whereby Pauline Collins' character, I forgot her name already, Pat Lord, an aspiring Dancer slash actress mm. is um, she goes joyriding with her with <laughs> with a man and yeah. then they crash. I don't yeah. know. It's just it, I, mean, I don't know. It sort of starts as a I don't know. It sort of starts as a kind of classic.
4: And it's quite a dramatic opening. Yeah. When um, and I suppose from their point of view, this was their first mm-hmm. narrative feature film, and you can see them wanting to perhaps be quite exciting and, and do something different. And they're thinking about telling their story in a slightly different way. So it's a non-linear kind of film structure which is quite brave, I think, for your first film to try and do that. And it doesn't entirely work. These elements that they have don't gel together very well at all and whole kind of subplots seem to get forgotten and the flashback structure doesn't entirely work. So for a long section of the film they have April Wilding narrating the police want to find out what happened to Pat. How did she die in this car? They could have done an interview and found that out in about half an hour. But instead, for some reason, they need to get her to go right back to their childhood and tell her entire life story.
3: Seems only yesterday we were kids playing in the street. We were friends from the pram almost. Pat was a daredevil right from the early days, always getting into trouble. You mean trouble at school? Oh, she didn't go much on school. At times we played truant don't let us go to school today. Pat, we've got to. The teacher send a note. No, she won't. Anyway, I don't feel well. Where will we go? I know. Pat we can do some dancing. Come on in. Pat wasn't keen on studies, but she loved every minute of dancing school. And our weekly lessons were heaven to her.
4: So that whole framing device doesn't really work anyway. And then they seem to forget about it by the end because um, we just kind of get to the bit again where she gets in the car and then we cut to the fan dance and that's the end. So we never know whether the police found out who it was. We never find out who it was. That whole thing is sort of forgotten. So in some ways you're left relieved that it's finished, (laughs) particularly because you've had to watch the fan dance 20 times. But at the same time you're left sort of unresolved. The narrative doesn't properly conclude at the end yeah, there's a lot of loose threads in this film. In
1: 1966, I think "Smashing Time" came out with Rita, yeah, Rita Tushingham and mm-hmm. um, Lynn Redgrave, which is all about two two girls in the big city, specifically Carnaby Street, and they sing and they dance and they fall in love. And like you can start to see the parallel when um, April Wilding's character starts to narrate. Um, about their past and about them being schoolgirls together and always dreaming about going to windmills. So I think in that respect, it's quite admirable because it's spotlighting two women, right? Two young women who aspire to be windmill girls.
4: Yeah, but. which which was a true thing. I mean, I've seen lots of interviews with real windmill girls who often talk about, that. You know, there are many that I've seen, I'll say many, I've seen a few, where they would turn up at the windmill for an audition and they'd be like 14 years old. And they'd do the audition, and then they'd, uh, they'd reveal how old they really were, and he would say, "I'll come back in a year." You know, but there were definitely win- windmill girls on that stage who were under sixteen. That's crazy. It's a different time.
1: I know, but it's like, but it's 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 funny because the windmill is is it's that that myth is only kind of. It, 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 it definitely, I don't know what happened, but, you know, for the theater that never closed, they made a Hollywood film about it tonight and every night in 1945 starring um, Rita Hayworth. And, and yet I knew no nothing about it when I started my PhD. I knew nothing about the Windmill Theater except when I watched Mrs. Henderson Presents, which of course has become this sort of mainstream hit, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's a musical. But that film sort of sanitizes the whole business of striptease and the whole sex industry. So, you know... Comparing that to this, because it all takes place in mm-hmm. the windmill, and just and there's just so many films about the windmill.
4: Yeah, well, there were some back in the forties as well. There's the murder at the windmill, is it called? I think that murder at the windmill's know. got um, John Pertwee in it as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's part of popular culture. So even if you never went mm. to the windmill back then, anyway, everyone knew what it was. I think it was that slogan. We never closed became kind of symbolic of the. British pluck during the war so even if you Mm. never went it was seen as this great icon of um, British bravery and just getting on with it you know so there's all kinds of little things in the film that are really interesting and getting to see inside the windmill and it's at the end of its life is really fascinating you just have to put up with a pretty ropey plot and some terrible uh, interludes because obviously it's not just the windmill wasn't just dancing and we haven't really talked about that yet, but there's also comedians and... Variety. uh, Variety, Mm. performers, people coming on and singing songs.
3: I once served a master when I was in Hull, His manner's a bit on the slack side. He used to upbraid me for being so dull and give me a kick on the ba bu- ba bu- ba bu- ba bu- ba bu- bass of my skull singing folder
4: aldery. So those bits that are in the film are all from the real Windmill show. Those weren't performed for the movie. That's all again just stuff that was shot two years earlier, and it's pretty terrible gardens, stuff.
3: Admiring the views, I played her my fugues and sonatas She lifted her skirt as she sat neath the yews And I got a glimpse of her gardening shoes singing all But lots of
4: really famous comedians and people got their career started at the windmill, like Harry Seacum started out at the windmill. And loads of, you read the biographies or autobiographies of lots of our really well-known comedians. They all say they started out telling jokes at the windmill. Ronnie Corbett, I think, did. Loads of them did. And they all say how no one would ever laugh at their jokes. All the men are just looking, reading the newspaper, waiting for the girls to come back out. Hmm. Um, but you can sort of see, just on the evidence in this film, <laughs> that those interlude acts are so terrible. And
3: to make her say yes, I plied her with potions and liquors. But that fair charmer, to my great distress, would not let me take down her na 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 name and address. Singing fall it's
4: like they were deliberately bad to try and make the men leave, because men would come in at twelve o'clock midday and then stay till they closed at eleven at night. But you know, that's part of the charm. I mean, we don't watch these movies because they're good films, and it doesn't really matter from a sort of quality point of view. They are far more interesting as historical documents as mm. pieces of entertainment particularly when you, cause you think about the audience that was watching the film like wh- who went to see this movie and why did they go to see it if the film is a warning to young girls not to get into prostitution it's probably not they're not the girls who are going to watch the movie the people who are going to be watching the film are the men who would have been in the audience at the windmill so why do they need to be warned about the dangers of becoming a stripper? Like the. The message that they're selling is not really for their target audience it's partly again it comes down a lot of it i think to this sort of moral justification the older generation condemning the young for their liberal lifestyle when they actually really enjoy watching this liberal lifestyle
3: pat was hardly recognizable as a lively young girl who loved living she was a burnt out husk verging on a mental breakdown wow.
1: That's the thing about Secrets of a Windmill Girl is that there isn't really any, I mean, there is a moralistic stance at the end, but they're not really visible. I mean, you have the policeman who comes in and kind of goes out, but there isn't really any sort of watchful eye on any of the characters or on the windmill.
4: I suppose because they owned the windmill now, Compton didn't want to paint it in a particularly bad light because they're about to open it and have it be their venue but they held the premiere for this film in the windmill once it had been con- they converted into a cinema during post-production. But yeah, so there's there's definitely a lack of judgment on the windmill girls and the, that whole lifestyle is seemingly fine. It's only if you step outside of that into the seedier elements of Soho's underbelly that you get into trouble. Get I want to tell you
3: about myself, fellas. I'm gonna be in the West End soon. I, I don't have to do this. I'm doing it for a favour, for the manager. He's a friend of mine, you see. No, no, look, listen, I want to tell you about this. See, I've got this great part. I'm going to be a great success in the West End soon. Look, I don't have to do this. I used to be a windmill girl. Oh, go to hell!
4: But these kind of films, um, the Beat Girl as well is quite similar. They kind of make it the girl's fault. These films want to have their cake and eat it. They want to see the girls doing all this stuff. They want to see the girls at the windmill having a great time with no clothes on, but they want to condemn them for their behaviour by the end of the film. And partly I think that is a way of getting around censorship restrictions, because if the girls took their clothes off and had no consequences, the censors would have been even tougher on the film. But that kind of moral judgment goes through most British sex films. It goes right through into the 70s. So this film follows that exact same model um, that she is punished for the lifestyle that she has chosen.
3: Standby, electrics.
4: In those days, it's most like men insane. had never even seen their wives naked. Mm. You know, this was the best they could get. You couldn't see it on film. Is
1: that true? <laughs> is that true? The shame of that, it's just... It's shocking because it's shame, right? It's essentially shame.
4: It's because we were still Victorian. We, but the we're,
1: Victorians invented like you know the vibrator and stuff.
4: Yeah, but know. they didn't show anyone. True. I mean, we the Victorian legacy of forbidden fruit and mm. you know lasted 50 years after she died, and it was only and that's what's interesting. That's mm. I think that's why I keep coming back to the 60s. Like, I wasn't born. You know. But my interests have always come back to the sixties. Mm. And and I think a lot of it is because it's just so fascinating that shift in one generation from the fifties into the sixties, everything changed. And these films are a really interesting document of that time. Men just didn't see it and they didn't see it in the cinemas until the nudist films came along. And so going to somewhere like the Windmill was was your one chart and even there, you know, the girls mm. would have to stand very still and be quite far away from unless you were lucky enough to sit at the front. All of the people involved in this film, and obviously... Michael Klinger, sort of prolific career
3: after breaking away. So
4: he went on to become a really important independent director uh, in the UK, and Get Carter is probably his most well-known film. But he made a few, and one of my, and again another kind of sexploitation film for him, I guess, and one of my favourites, if that's the right word, is Baby Love, which is really fascinating, particularly now that we know what we know about what was going on at the BBC in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, and elsewhere in the media, you know, the exploitation of underage girls and all this kind of thing, and Baby Love is kind of about that, and it's really interesting that he was making this film when he did, in 1968, kind of hitting some of these issues head on. So yes, he was a very interesting producer. mean um, obviously Pauline Collins did all right, and Martin Jarvis has done pretty well for himself. April Wilding, not so much maybe, but she's just very rich anyway, so that was okay. But it was a good starting point for many people's careers, I suppose, if not for the windmill.
1: Secrets of a Windmill Girl is one of the eight films in the upcoming Soho Agogo season at the Regent Street Cinema in London. You can catch it on Saturday, October 5th at 5 p.m., and it's followed by a Q&A with the screenwriter and critic David McGilvray. In fact, most of the films in the season are followed by a Q&A, including one hosted by me after the Shakedown screening on Friday, October 4th. And producer Dom will be joined on stage by Dr. Melanie Williams on October 6th to talk about Rattle of a Simple Man. Some of the pictures and cuttings Dr. Adrian Smith brought in will be available on our show notes at sohobitespodcast.wordpress.com. Adrian tweets under the name at RetroRamblings and he also has a great blog, which you can find from theorientwithfury.blogspot.com. And as I mentioned earlier, there are screenings coming up of Tales from Tin Pan Alley. If you fancy combining it with A Day at the Seaside, you can see the film for free on Saturday, October 4th at Brighton Library at 2 p.m and there's also a screening in Shoreditch in November. For details and updates, you can follow Henry Scott Irvine on Twitter at Talespan, and you can listen to his weekly radio show on Resonance 104.4, Tuesdays at 4pm, repeated at 11am on Sundays. The theme of the next episode of Soho Bites is that one topic that always springs to mind when anyone mentions Soho. It's the sports episode. We have a day out at the countryside with the Soho Cricket Collective, and we join Dr. Melanie Williams and Dom, who will talk about the film that has a football connection, Rattle of a Simple Man, recorded live on stage at the Regent Street Cinema. Until next time, from me, Jing On Young, and my producer, Dom Dalagi, bye for now.